Hello and welcome to Dungeon Talk, the general advice and discussion podcast from D&D Academy. I am Michael and this is Dungeon Talk episode number 36, Combat the Angry Way, part 1. So Caleb and I had the opportunity to sit down with the Angry DM, who is famous or possibly infamous on Twitter and on his blog, AngryDM.com, for giving D&D and role-playing advice with attitude. He was exceptionally pleasant and very knowledgeable. I'm not sure that I would want the competition, but I kind of feel like that dude needs his own podcast because he, he was pretty awesome. So uh, this is a fantastic episode for me. I actually learned quite a lot as well that I'm going to try to apply in my games. I was able to bookend the longer discussion that we had with Angry with some discussions that Caleb and I had separately. So that's one of the reasons why it's a two-parter because all together was about two hours. So we're actually going to start with a discussion that Caleb and I had about the role, R-O-L-E, of combat in-game. Sort of like, you know, what is its purpose? How do you use it uh, effectively in your games? And then we transitioned into the conversation that we had with the Angry DM about combat. And the goal of that was to give sort of a nuts and bolts, A to Z combat discussion. This is how you run surprise rounds. This is how you do initiative. This is how you create good encounters. And and we didn't quite get to every single topic that we wanted, but I think overall it was a very good discussion focusing on how to make the combats exciting and interesting and fun, not just for your players, but for you as well. And that's pretty much going to be the end of part one. Part two will be out the following week, and we finish up that discussion that we had with Angry, where we talk, we kind of end up with epic level fights. It's not really epic level as an epic level, but epic fights. So this is the main fight of a game. You, you finally got to the main bad guy. What do you do or how can you make that battle seem more memorable or, or play differently at the table? And then the actual last thing will be a uh, table topic with Caleb and I talking about our recent fake game. So here is Dungeon Talk episode number 36, Combat the Angry Way, part one. So the topic that we're going to start with tonight is the role of combat, and role is an R-O-L-E. And what I mean by that is as a DMGM, you are trying to provide a game that's fun for everyone at your table. And there are some people that probably like combat more than others, depending on your, your table and your demographics that, you know, it's probably a safe assumption that there's at least one player at your table who really likes combat. And we're going to talk later with the Angry DM in some detail and depth about that. But what we want to really talk about right now is, like, what role does combat play in your overall story? Like, it's a tool that you use to create drama, create tension, and, you know, what different ways can you use it? How can you effectively use it in your game? So I'll kind of let you kick that off, Caleb, and then I'll throw in some thoughts as you go. So how do you as a DM use combat as like a tool in your games? Well, I try to use it in a couple different ways. Um, As you just said, I think it is a really good way to build the tension and the excitement in a game. I think it is a way to push the players to spend their resources 
and allocate their skill usage properly. Um, it helps motivate them to work together as a team. Uh, it can be used to demonstrate the danger of the world or the setting they're in. If you're telling a story about being in a foreign land they've never encountered before and there's nothing to challenge them or fight them, it's not very exciting. If you're uh, telling the story when they're in a war, there had better be some combat and danger from the war, or else that part of the story has no impact. So what kind of what you're saying is it helps set the mood and the tone of the game, that if you're playing a game that's supposed to be really gritty, but you don't have a lot of combat, then it's not you're you're going to lose some of that feel that you're going for in your game. Uh, am I reading you right? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a much better way to put it than how I was rambling. <laughs> um, well, we we've talked in the past about how to set the mood at the table, and it's always difficult. Um, there's no easy answer. You know, it, it might come down to playing a certain soundtrack in the background, or um, you know, actually putting up a bunch of pictures in a slideshow or something to give players a feel for what they're really experiencing. But when you're playing a role-playing game, you're really losing that tactile and sensory connection to what you're pretending to do. So as a GM, we need a way to, to, to really make that come to life. And the way D&D is structured, nine times out of ten, that boils down to doing something combatively. Because it's going to make you make decisions as a character, it's going to make you take actions, uh, spend your resources, and most likely suffer consequences. I think for me, another way that, and this is something that Evan and I had discussed on a previous episode, is that combat to me sometimes can be story, or it can be a way to express story. You know, if you have a, a game that there's a lot of mystery involved and um, subterfuge. And there's maybe, I'm a big fan of doppelgangers and doppelganger-like creatures that um, impersonate people, you know, the thing type of a story or the body snatchers type of a story. Mm -hmm. And you get yourself into a situation where you're having a combat with someone that it doesn't make sense that you're having a combat with, then that's, that's the story coming out because that's going to be a situation where, you know, they're going to meet their NPC ally in the tavern. And then when they get there, they're ambushed by that ally. That's telling them something about the story. So when you're providing combat, which is, again, for a lot of people, a fun element of the game, but you're also giving the people who like the story and who like mysteries going, okay, why is he doing this? Why is this happening? And it could be they were bribed. It could be they were forced to it. They were coerced. Or again, maybe they've been replaced by something else and they're not really your friend anymore. And I just, I think that's a way to combine the story elements with the combat elements so that you're kind of providing both at the same time. Right. I agree. Um, what you're saying, if I may summarize like you did for me, you like how you can use combat to reveal plot hooks, story devices, you, how you can use combat to uh, develop characters, reveal motivations, that type of thing. So your, your combat might be a framework for certain plot points. Yes, uh, I would agree with that. And I think there's some elements in there too that, you know, if you're fighting a creature that you fought before, like a goblin, you know, for a low-level game, but this goblin is much tougher 
there's something about this goblin that you know they're resistant to magic weapons or they uh, they regenerate. You know, one that could be a cool combat encounter because you're setting the PCs up for the kind of a switcheroo, the bait and switch. They think, oh, you know, here's five goblins. This is just a, a combat that's supposed to take some resources, or maybe we're supposed to take them prisoner and you know get some information. And then you play with that assumption, and these are like level ten barbarian goblins that kind of kick the shit out of your PCs. Again, that's that's a story coming out as told by combat because now they figure out why are these goblins so tough did they have magical items were they under a magical spell is there a wizard that we weren't aware of that's that's behind all this that's happening you know it could be a supernatural twist uh, you know a demon or a genie that's involved maybe a, maybe the goblins found a magical lamp and it, it granted all the goblins in that army these magical powers so again you're creating a mystery that you're telling it by combat that is a, a really good way to reveal facts about the world, about specifically where your players are, the city they're in, the town, the continent. Uh, I mean, depending on the type of world you've built, if, this, if you're doing a homebrew game, you might have goblins in the first city that they encounter as a normal goblin, and then they get in a boat, and travel across the ocean, and all of a sudden the goblins are completely different. So it's um, it's a good way to enforce the weirdness of the world or strangeness of the world. Um, so combat can be a very useful tool to help reveal those facts that would otherwise just be you sitting down and telling them, okay, here's what makes this continent unique. Okay, in this area there's a wizard and he's been terrorizing everybody. You can use combat to reveal those facts. Right. So another thing I was just thinking of, I know that like player authorship is sort of a kind of the, the go-to term right now for role-playing games with, uh, you know, the sort of fate and like Dresden file where you have the more, a more collaborative story versus a traditional D&D story. And I think that combat in a lot of time, in a lot of cases, that is a way for a player to affect the game world in a very significant and quantifiable way. If you're not in a game that has heavy player authorship where, you know, you say, okay, we want to go to the next town and, and go to the bar, and the DM's like, okay, well, what's the name of the next town? You know, how far away is it? What's the name of the tavern? If you're not in the type of game where that happens, then your character removing another character from the game is sometimes the only authorship you have. And I think in some cases, that's there's a feeling of accomplishment that a player gets from being successful in combat. And not just, you know, rolling a natural 20 or, or sneak attacking using good tactics, but just from a story standpoint, you know, this guy was a bad guy and now he's no longer here. I have affected the story. You're also, to make that a little bit simpler, not just how you affect the world and affect the story, but you're talking about building the reputation of the characters. So if you are the type of character that gets in a lot of fights and you walk to the next town and go into that tavern, how are the, how do they react to your reputation? So that right there could be its own plot hook. That could simply be a a bit of a device that you as the GM use to make that role-playing session more difficult or more interesting. If if these are the, the PCs that killed the dragon, 
probably everyone's going to react to them positively, or at least maybe show them some respect or be intimidated by them. On the flip side of that, if you want to use that as an interesting story element, they kill the dragon, they walk into a new town, and suddenly everyone hates them because they worship dragons, or that dragon was protecting them from something even worse. So how do the PCs step up and fix that? I think that's something we touched on in our last episode with kind of the synergy when Porter threw out his idea about how you kind of subvert the player's expectations where they do the quote-unquote heroic thing and then it turns out that was the worst possible thing that they could do. I'm always a fan of doing that uh, because I'm kind of an asshole like that. (laughs) It is a bit of an asshole move. It's the it's the M. Night Shyamalan movie of of being a GM. Um, Yes that's true yeah. And it's really fun but you don't want to exploit it. You don't want to abuse that type of storytelling. I think it can be it can be annoying if it's it happens every single time. It can make the game less fun. Yeah, and uh, you know that goes back just to life. You know, modest, uh, moderation and everything, or everything in moderation, I should say. And uh, I think a good example of that for me to talk about is, is Dritz. You know, one of the most famous D and D inspired characters in fantasy literature. Right. He is the the drow with a conscience, the good guy. And if you have not played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons and you've not interacted with the drow or the drow, as I've heard them called, a lot, then having that character that's the twist on the normal character, it doesn't really have any meaning because, you know, if Dritz is the only drow you've ever met, then your opinion of drow is that they're all these great heroes. So kind of paralleling that to our back to our conversation is if every time they get into a fight, the DM pulls the rug out from under them and say, no, you've killed the good guy, then you're going to kind of put a bad taste in the player's mouth and they're probably going to stop looking forward to combat. Plus, that twist isn't as effective. It's a much more effective twist if it's late into the game and they've, you know, they've been six, seven, eight sessions in, there's lots of combat, they kind of got a feel for how the game goes, and then you do that, now that twist means something. Exactly, and that echoes back to what we said earlier when you're using combat to effectively tell part of the story. In a game like D&D, where the majority of the rules are structured about how to take actions in combat and what to do in combat, that becomes the norm. That is the, the comfort level for your players. So when you change that comfort level, you've impacted how they make their decisions and how they're deciding to play the game. Something I like to do is, and I think this is a a little bit where you and I differ when we're running a game, I tend to throw players into combat at the first logical opportunity. I think combat can really help players define their characters and get to know their characters. Plus, it opens up for some good role-playing examples and opportunities early on in the game session. So when I'm writing a campaign or preparing a campaign, one of my first thoughts as a priority is to get some dice rolling and get a fight going. Even if it's something little, if it's a bunch of low-level goblins that they can just mow through, it's something to get the wheels greased and, uh, and get the game moving better, I think. Gotcha. Yeah, I do tend not to do that. I usually want to try to develop the story and have 
have some moments happening where they start to kind of get into the skin of their characters before I put them in, in mortal danger. Though, you know, there are some notable exceptions. There's a series of podcasts that I'm still working on uh, from a short adventure I ran a while back, kind of around the synergy thing. It's like a, I'm working on, I'm kind of working on a process going to be like DMing 101 with synergy. I, I, I walked through the entire process and then I also go ahead and actually wrote the adventure that came out of synergy. Then we played that adventure and then I'm going to kind of recap it. So it's going to be like a whole little sort of block of podcasts that go together. But in that one, I did the, like the very first thing that happened is we rolled initiative. It was just like, okay, roll initiative. And then we kind of worked backwards from there. And, and again, I don't know if it's just because that's not what I do very often or if that's just something they really liked, but that had a very, like everyone was really excited about that. Everyone had a lot of fun right off the bat because I did that. And I think sometimes it just depends on the type of game that you want to run. You know, you, you're sort of setting the, the tone of the game right off the bat. And if you're, the tone of your game is there's going to be combat, it's important, then, then having a combat early helps set that tone. If you're going for a different tone, then having combat come later, it, it makes sense. Again, there's no right or wrong way. It's just sort of like what type of game you're trying to present to your players and, and helping them get immersed into your, into your game. It's all about how you want to do things, and it's a little bit about what you know about your players. If you know you've got players that really like role-playing and you want everyone to have fun, you're going to give them more opportunities. And if you have players that tend to like combat a little bit more, you're going to give them more combat opportunities. Of course, as a good GM, I think you need to push your players to do things that are a little bit different and a little bit new sometimes. So that's where that's where you're going to, you know, add in some different types of combat, some different environments, you're going to add in a more heavy role play element or something that makes them really think about why they're doing what they're doing and develop the game from there. Now, kind of switching gears from a, a storytelling element just from a sort of player engagement aspect, one of the things I thought about with this is in, in a lot of cases, I'm, I'm just kind of assuming here, but in a lot of cases, I think that if you're a new DM and you're getting ready to, to run your first game or two or you're in the middle of your first game, that you probably have players at your table that are less comfortable with role-playing than they are with the combat. And I know those are exceptions. I'm sure there's people out there that they play with their entire drama class and everyone wants to be an actor or is an actor and they're all very outgoing people great, that's probably a game that you should be recording for a podcast because it's probably a lot of fun. <laughs> but I think for a lot of people when they first start, it's easier to wrap your head around the combat rules than it is role-playing. And if you have a mix of players, so like you brought a new person in or you, you've got like a half and half, then the combat is easier for everyone to kind of be involved at the table. Like everyone's going to be involved in the combat. Even when it's not your turn, for the most part, you should be paying attention so that you know what to do when it is your turn, that you've decided who, you know, who you're going to move to attack or who you're going to cast your spell on or healing or you know, try to get a flanking bonus. So even when it's not your turn, you're still kind of actively engaged in the process. Where if you have someone that's very hesitant to be a role player, they haven't got confidence yet or they're a little bit unsure, then they're probably going to be very quiet while the role playing is going on. They may, you know, they may be listening. They're an active listener, but they're probably less likely to to get involved in role play. I think that's something that you learn to role play over time by watching it. But you can learn combat 
just sort of going step by step. And I think it's a way to keep everyone at the table engaged rather than segmenting off the two people who like to role play and they take over a scene and you have a 20 minute role play scene, which is great. But then you have two other players that are sitting there kind of whittling their thumbs waiting for something else to happen. Yeah, you're right. When you're, when you're starting with combat or when you're teaching a new player combat, it, that is kind of the more, I don't want to say realistic part that they can grab onto, but it's certainly more, there's more rules. Role-playing is all about flavor and getting the feel for the moment and kind of having that spontaneity to improv and, and go roll with the punches. When it comes down to combat, you can make it very simple and say, you know, here's your, your, your role to attack, here's your defense, here's the special things you can do. And it, it can give those new players a little bit more of an opportunity to jump in and when, as a GM, we are asking more of our players to describe an action or how they make an attack or describe the resolution of an attack, we can help these new players learn how to roleplay a little bit. I get you. So it's sort of like bridging the gap. You're using a very mechanical process of roll this dice, get this number. Okay, now you've hit. Describe that hit. And it's sort of bridging the gap between the mechanics and the flavor of roleplay. Exactly. And it's a good way to give a, a real example of how you roleplay in relation to these numbers and random dice rolls. If, you're, if you have a new player and they roll a hit and they got an 18 and it was a crazy good hit and they roll a ton of damage and you ask them to describe that attack... They might stare at you deer in the headlights. But then you give them the example. You say, look, this was a really good hit. You were way over their defense, their AC. You rolled a lot of damage. You practically killed them in one hit. You really hurt them. They're scared of you. What did you do? How, how did your character react to that, think about that, feel about that? Why was that attack so good? Was it just lucky? Were you really dedicated? Were you really focused? You can teach these new players how these random numbers relate to playing pretend. No, I, I actually do think that's a really good idea, and it's something that, again, if you're a brand new DM and you're you're getting ready to, to run your first game, you need to evaluate your players. Are these people who are going to be good at role playing or comfortable role playing right off the bat? If not, then a pretty short introductory scene. And then uh, really quick going into probably an easy combat, something that the players can handle fairly easily. Um, you know, I would probably go with quite a lot of easy enemies. <clears throat> that way it's not over too fast. And use that as a way to, again, to kind of bridge that role-playing element. All right, guys, but we're here to talk about combat. I have Caleb with me, um, guest hosting once again, and we have a special guest host, you probably know him on Twitter as the Angry DM, or you've read his blog, Angry DM, at angrydm.com, right? Angrydm.com, yep. Angrydm.com. And we're going to talk about combat, kind of an A to Z, if this is your first game or you're kind of new to, to games. And we talk mostly about D&D, but we do cover other things as well. Just some sort of tips and tricks on how to run an effective combat to make it engaging for the players, how to you know have fun as the DM at the same time, knowing that more than likely all your NPCs are going to die, uh, and how do you keep that interesting and, and keep things moving at the table? 
Unless so you're the, good at it and you can win. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you talk about that a lot. That's actually one of the things that we kind of disagree about is I'm one of those people that will fudge the dice, but that's usually only because I'm so lazy I don't build balanced encounters, and I kind of have to. But I, I respect the, your your ability to make a good encounter and then just it plays out whether you know you win or they win. That's just the way the dice fall. Uh, I probably should do more of that. So in particular, one of the kind of the sort of the big topics I wanted to talk about, there's there's some meaty stuff I want to get into, but sort of the discussion about maps and minis versus theater of the mind. On the podcast, particularly, it makes a lot of sense because we're doing kind of like a radio play. We've got away from maps and minis, and we pretty much do theater of the mind all the time just because I don't think it makes for good radio to hear people counting squares and trying to line up shots. But in general, Angry, where do you fall in um, Maps and Minis, Theater of the Mind, a little bit of both? Does it p- depend on what you're trying to accomplish in that combat? Well, I'll tell you, honestly, I think that the debate is... You know what, there's a phrase that I love, uh, Tempest in a Teapot. Uh, some people like Mountain out, out of a Molehill, but I like Tempest in a Teapot. And I think this whole Minis versus Theater of the Mind or Grid and Tokens versus Theater of the Mind, I think people make a lot more out of the debate than there really needs to be. Because uh, in the end, when you look at it, the only thing that Grids and Tokens really get you is precise measurement of position so that you know where everybody is and everybody sitting at that table has the same picture in their head. So if it's important in the game you're running then you probably want to use something or else everybody's got to keep track of it in their head. Otherwise, if it's not important, you, you can ignore it unless you think they're cool. If you think they're cool, use them, You know, even if you don't need them. That's really all it is. You listen to people and they have these endless debates over which is better and which breaks your imagination and which does this and which does that. And It's really, what is the game doing and do you need it? And do you want it? And then just do it. As simple and common sense as that sounds, you're right. There is a lot of endless debate. For me, in particular, because I've you know I play with maps and minis most of my gaming career. It was just kind of what you did. And then uh, when D and D Next came out, that was right about the time we started the podcast. It it wasn't necessarily designed that way, but it just sort of happened. So we focused a lot on that. And um, Evan and I went to a, a, a game store that was hosting one of the first playtest packets, sort of a game. And we did theater of the mind, and we, on the way on the drive home, we were both talking about how we really could kind of see what was happening. It was more like a movie in our head versus sort of a third person seeing us moving tokens around. And then that was kind of what was what, what started us thinking about going away from them. And then the, probably the biggest thing, and this this goes into my craziness. I, I I'm definitely have some OCD issues. Is that as a DM, I always felt like I lost the group in the time that it took me to set up combat. Because I'm a very story-focused DM. I, I really want to get people involved in the story and excited. And then when you build up to this tension that, okay, now we're about to have a combat, it was like a 10-minute break for me to get the map out or to draw the map or everybody to find their mini. And it, it not necessarily the immersion, it just seemed to like stop the game. And I like the idea of, of Theater of the Mind that there's really no segue. It's just straight into... Okay, I'm mad at this guy. I'm gonna throw a punch, and we're in combat without the without the setup. So I get it's still a personal choice, and it does eliminate some of the tactical things. Like so, fourth edition would be kind of hard to do that way. Mm-hmm. But I think next really does its strength is that it it works without maps and minis. 
But having said that, there's been a few games recently where I've had like big set piece encounters, and I kind of I kind of wish that I would have had maps and minis. So I'm starting to kind of come back more to the middle that I may start doing them on occasion for certain battles, but not for others. What do you think, Caleb? I definitely agree with Angry more for the sake of my own security, uh, but <laughs> uh, in general, do whatever the hell you want to do. If you like minis, use minis. If you don't, don't. I come from a GM standpoint, as opposed to Michael, of being much more tactically focused, much more combat focused in my running style. So I feel a lot more comfortable having maps ready to go or just drawing a quick map on a grid with a, a dry erase marker or something. I feel that maps and minis help focus players who tend to be a little distracted. and It, it can give them something to bring into and attach to. So a lot of times I feel... Uh, um, I, I need those maps and minis to act almost as a crutch to get my players' attention. And that's just the group I play with. My my home group, we're all a little bit scatterbrained. We're all a little bit easily distracted. So if I can plop a, a giant dragon on the map in front of them, it, it snags their attention, and they will focus on what we're doing. Do you ever find that people then become distracted with that? Like they're they're looking at the detail of the map, like say it's a pre-printed WotC map, and they're... They're really not listening to you. They're just really checking out the map, or maybe they're playing with their miniatures. Like, Do you find that sometimes it goes the other way and it becomes a distraction? I personally have not run into that, but I can very easily see where the, the accoutrement, where the tools would then become a distraction in and of themselves. You know, hey, my figure doesn't have a sword, and I'm carrying a sword. What the hell? Or, hey, that's not a goblin. That's a lizard man, blah, 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 blah. And that just opens up a whole nother ball of craziness that we can avoid. But right. I think one of the important things there is that just because you drop minis on the table does not mean you stop role-playing. doesn't mean you don't stop interacting. So if I have a dragon in the middle of the battlefield facing these heroes and they're distracted with the little plastic figures, I'm not effectively playing a dragon. If I'm a dragon at the table, nobody can ignore me. And I don't care if there's a toy in the middle of the room. Uh, you, you know, I'm in it being a dragon. You can't stop being descriptive and you can't stop... Um, the minis aren't a substitute for description. They're, they're a tool that adds to it, that says, also, this thing is right here. I mean, if you think about it, you can use pennies, you know, just write initials on pennies and get the same effect that you get with a mini and you'd have to describe everything. So if you're going to run with minis, my advice is pretend you're running with pennies or tokens on on simple line drawings so that you still have to provide the description, you still have to provide the role playing, you still have to have the awesome dragon voice. <laughs> you yeah. know, whatever you have to do. Every one of my voices ends up being like a pirate. Like I, that's pretty much so. Every dragon would be a Lucky Charms pirate combo. <laughs> Who dares disturb my lair? And exactly, treasure. that's my gold. <laughs> Which actually that does fit for a pirate too. Uh, but but one of the things that actually uh, when I was at Gen Con, I, I played in a thirteenth, uh, excuse me, a Primeval Fool game. Richard Baker actually ran that for me. One of the things that he did, which again is so common sense, I don't know why I never thought of it before. But he had a bunch of pre-made Watsy maps. I, I think I probably have the same ones he had from different box sets that I bought. 
but he wrote his own adventure. And then when he would do his box text, he would write it with those maps in mind. Mm -hmm. So rather than just trying to find a generic cave and throw it down, he wrote, he was looking at the map and he wrote box text. So when he would say, you know, and you see this to the right and there's bones here, he just added in the stuff that was already there. And I said, I was like, wow, that's such an easy, simple idea, but it's so effective because that's one of the reasons why I don't like pre-made maps is that it's hard to find exactly what you want. So why not just take one and make it what you need it to be? Since we're still on the subject, I, I have um, one other thing I would advise for people who do want to use minis in the grid. And I should say, I go both ways. At my Pathfinder game, I use minis in a grid almost all the time. I use some Dwarven Forge stuff. Uh, I love that stuff. Uh, my online Savage Worlds game, we're completely gridless. I've gotten rid of distances and bursts and all that stuff. So we're completely theater of the mind. But for the minis, if you're going to use minis in a grid or tokens in a grid, whatever you're going to use, you need to practice being able to talk while you're setting up. So that as you're setting things down, as you're drawing, you're also describing. So if you can picture it like one of those scenes where there's a black screen and the narrator's voice is coming in and talking about the things and then as he's talking those things are appearing on the screen that's kind of what you want to be able to do so that you can say you're in a large square room and as you're saying that you're drawing out the room with a flagstone floor and and these uh, you know masonry walls that are vaulted and arched toward the ceiling about 10 feet up and there's a door over here a heavy oak door that hasn't been opened in ages and and here are some orcs, thunk, 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 and you drop down the three orcs, and they're standing in the middle of the rooms, and one of them says, who dares disturb us? You know, you, you just learn to do that as you're setting up so that you don't have that segue. You don't have that, okay, guys, everybody pause, or uh, I like to call it the loading screen, like a video game, where it's like, okay, everybody wait for the blue bar to fill. i got to draw the map. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's that's what I always did, uh, so that's that's very good advice for me is to to try to sort of multitask and do both at the same time because I would do that. I would say, okay, we're, you know, basically take a five minute break. Everyone's looking at their characters, picking up their dice and I'm trying to draw a map and I can't draw for crap. So I, and then I'm trying to hurry up and get the map drawn because I feel like it's taking too long. So then it's even worse. I can't draw anyways. And then I'm rushing. So then when we get done and we're ready to look at my map, it doesn't look like anything. So it was just kind of a disaster in the making. But you're not drawing a Renoir here. You're drawing a diagram. You're drawing lines, lines and squares. Open up, uh, get a copy of the old red box, the Mensa red box. Open up to the back of the book with the little diagram of this is a door and it's a little rectangle and this is a wall and this is a pit. Learn those symbols. Use them. Don't try to do anything more complicated than that. Oh, I wasn't. I'm just, yeah. I'm just, I'm just that bad. All right, so let's move on to get to some of the nuts and bolts. So this is, again, it's designed for someone who's running their first combat for the first game. So a couple of things that we're going to take these like chronologically of how the battle would happen, but that's not necessarily the order that it would happen if you're prepping. So I want to talk a little bit about surprise. I'll be honest, I don't use it very often. Part of that's just the way that I think my battles kind of start, but that is within the rules something that you should pay attention to, especially if you have an ambush uh, one side's un completely unaware that they're about to be into a combat. So do either of you have any you know, rules or guidelines about surprise? Do you ever use it? Or is it more just common sense, you're not aware, my side goes first, and then we roll initiative type stuff? Jeez, I, I never really thought about this question. I mean, I do use surprise in the game, but it t like 
I mean, if if you're playing a game like Pathfinder D and D, then there are rules, and it's like, are you aware of the the opponents or whatever? But for the most part, if there's any question about one side being aware, the other side being aware, if there's any possibility that they're aware, I assume both sides are aware, and we just start in starting positions and go. If the players go go to great lengths to set an ambush, then they can have a surprise round. If the monsters come out of nowhere and go to great lengths to have an ambush, uh, then they can have a surprise round. I don't think too hard about it. But it's definitely there. It's um, there's this idea of of differences in in kind, where you want every encounter to have kind of a different feel to it, and one of the ways you do that is by changing the way the encounter starts. So if you have three rooms with five orcs in the rooms, you know those could be exactly the ident- exactly identical encounters, except in one of those rooms the party manages to get the drop on the orcs. In one of the rooms the party comes up in the middle of the room and they're surrounded by orcs who are ready for them. And in one of those rooms the party is on one side, the orcs are on the other side, and they both see each other coming. Those are three very different encounters. So you really do want to pay attention to it. What about you, Caleb? Have you ever effectively used surprise in your game, or, or it's, it's been something that meant something in the game? Um, I typically, like Angry said, just go by common sense, and I try to respect what my players are doing. If a couple people are really dedicated to establishing a trap or a, a way to get advantage, I might make them make a, a couple rolls, and see if they earn that surprise. I've used surprise against the party if they were hemming and hawing and wasting time, <laughs> or it was the first round of combat, and the player was just not prepared. And, oh, let me look at my sheet, or, or oh, oh, I need to figure out how the spell works, and they were just taking way too long. Consequence of the delay, well, you know what? They got a surprise on you, so however that played out. And that might not be exactly according to the rules, but, again, um, trying to keep it entertaining, try to mix things up a little bit. Um, and I think sometimes, as GMs, we need to just say, hey, you guys start at a disadvantage because, one, we, we want to make the encounter harder, or, two, it's what the story dictates. I mean... At some point in the story, you're going to get sieged by an ambush. It's it's kind of a, a a plot topic that we all rely upon. So, regardless of how the rules play out, you kind of have to tell your party, "Hey, you guys just got ambushed because of X Y Z," and it's part of the story. So you just roll with it. Yeah, I think I think we're all kind of agreeing in a different way. <laughs> I don't necessarily follow like, okay, this is I'm checking for surprise. And these three characters are surprised, but these three are not. It is, but I do use the element of one side is prepared versus the other. Whether it be they open a room and they weren't, they didn't listen first, so they're unprepared for what's on the other side, or it's a, you know, a sneak attack. You're you're in what you think is a political scene, and you know, Game of Thrones style, everybody turns on one another. Then I just do what kind of seems to make the most sense within that moment. And I like what Angry was saying is that it's that's a very easy way to make some battles feel different. If you're going through a, a tunnel full of goblins, how do you 
keep that from devolving into just a swing fest by changing up those little things like who gets to go first. And, and I like to reward players for being smart. And if they are able to sneak up to a room full of goblins, I, you know, they should be rewarded with the option of trying to skirt that encounter completely or setting up some sort of trap or ambush. I think that encourages that type of play and keeps it from becoming just a, all right, I'll swing, you swing, I'll swing, you swing, I'll win, you're dead type of a thing. Well, on top of that, you can also use surprise on both sides as ways to build on what the party has just done. For example, if they're standing around a door and they make the choice whether to pick the lock or smash down the door, that may determine how they go into the next scene. If they pick the lock, they may have the advantage of surprise. If they smash down the door and the guy does it in one roll, then they may have the advantage of surprise. But if the guy hits the door, bounces off of it, and has to take a couple of tries, whoever's on the other side is going to figure out something's coming through there, and they're going to be ready. You so you can so. Use, so you use that to kind of build on what the what the party has been doing previously, sort of awaiting the consequences of their choices. And I think I cut off Caleb. I'm sorry there. Oh, no, you're totally fine. Um, I was going to say I have played in games where we have uh, been very strict according to the, the as-written rules of initiative and surprise rounds, and the, the DM at that point said, okay, you guys are in a field and make, a, make a, a spot check or a perception check. And based on that, he said, okay, you three know what's going on, you two don't. And that was earlier in my gaming career, I didn't know any better, that was his style of running the game. I went along with it. It was totally fine. Mm-hmm. If that's how you run the game, if that's how you play the game, if you're all on the same page, it's okay. I think we've pretty much uh, <laughs> went all the way around that topic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so let's talk about initiative. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of hand in hand, but I think for a lot of people, myself included, I often struggle with keeping initiative straight. You know, you, you forget a character. Uh, turn, especially if somebody holds, do you remember to put them back in the order? If you have a larger party, you've got five or six players and they're fighting five or six different creatures. So I guess here I'm just looking for some tips and tricks on how to keep things organized. And then, you know, do you ever do the thing where you just say, okay, all the good guys go first, all the bad guys, or do you roll each like orc individually so that you have them spread out? Any particular thoughts on what is a, a good way to do that or a good way to keep track of it? First of all, if I can avoid it, I would never, ever do the all the good guys go and then all the bad guys go. That turn dynamic of, okay, now it's our turn, now it's your turn, really doesn't create a good dynamic feel to the combat. I like there to be more of a back and forth. So I try to avoid that wherever possible. Even to the point where if I have like a group of enemies, like, you know, the classic five work scenario, a lot of DMs will assume all those orcs go on the same turn, and I'll break them up into two groups. I'll give them two different initiatives just just to, to kind of, um, you know, just to break up the turns a little bit so that there isn't that our side, your side, our side, your side, because I want the combat to feel more dynamic. As far as how to track initiative, though, I am the worst guy in the world to ask for advice uh, I use this a, a very complicated device to keep track of my initiative. It's um it's a piece of paper, and I just 
<laughs> write down the initiatives in order and make notes as to who's afflicted by what and who's readied and who's delayed and all of that stuff and all these little pencil marks and it would take me forever to try and explain it and I don't think anyone who wasn't me would find that a sane system. It's probably the worst way to do it. <laughs> well, but I've been I'm, doing it for a long time and I've gotten really good at it. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you, you've got it a habitual, because I, I, I used to do that. I don't know. Again, I have like a big gaming table that I've built. It's about the size of a poker table. And before I used to have the whole thing was a gridded map with like a vinyl top. So I could just write in dry erase or actually write on the table. But again, I write really fast because I'm in a hurry and then, then I can't even read my own writing. And then it, when people start holding, I'm having to erase and it gets complicated. So a couple things that I've done in the past is note cards where I'll have just the name of each character and I don't necessarily care about the number. I just put them in order. Okay, I got orc, you know, orc one, PC two, orc three, PC four, and then I just flip through the cards in order. And then if someone holds, I just set them to the side. But what I do now, which actually I, I'm a big fan of, is I've made little name tents. They're you know just uh, print them out on the computer. They're like half the size of a paper. Cut it in half, fold them in half, and then I hang them on top of my DM screen. And they're printed on both sides, so I can see the names, and then the players can see the names. And then I just move them around, almost like playing three-card money. And then that way, if someone holds, I just pick them up, and then when they go back in, I put them back down. And what I like about that system is that the players can see who's coming up next as well, and it helps them, okay, I'm next. I, almost like they're being on deck. They're ready to go when it's their turn. What about you, Caleb? What, uh, any techniques that you use for tracking initiative? Nothing groundbreaking, <laughs> uh, nothing shockingly new. In older games with uh, older groups, when I was running, I actually delegated initiative to one of my players. You know, we would all roll initiative, and I would have that person write everything down. That was twofold. It was to take a little bit of the pressure off of me as running the game, and it was also to get people who weren't really paying attention to give them a task to get them to pay attention. Um, it had its ups and downs. A lot of times we would just do like the whole on-deck announcement. Okay, it's the fighter's turn, uh, the sorcerer's on deck, and then after that it'll be the orcs, kind of a little in-turn announcement so we know what's going on. I like using uh, dry erase boards and whiteboards. My group has kind of evolved into using that for more things. There's certainly no reason to purchase anything that is pre-made to do this. Pencil and paper works fine, but Paizo did make a really cool magnetic whiteboard pad with little was, magnetized tokens. I was going to bring that up. One of the guys that played in my game for a while had one of those, and it was like a little whiteboard you could write on, almost like a little arrow-shaped magnet. Yeah. And then you could move them around in the order, uh, you know, that way people held or as com people got taken out of the combat type of a thing. Right, and that's nothing different than what we've all three just described here. It's just that they found a way to package it and turn a bit of a profit on it. So, awesome. I really want one, but I know I don't need one. <laughs> it's just cool to have. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, we spend our money on gaming stuff, so, what, you know, what's one more thing there? You know, Paz has yeah. got to pay the bills, right? It's only 20 bucks. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, actually, I have one, too, and I've used it, and I find it pretty cool. 
So um, if you are really struggling for a way to track initiative, I'd say that that's, that's a good thing to look at for 20 bucks out of your pocket. It's useful for a lot of different games. It doesn't just have to be used for D&D. The other thing, I, I don't know if, you know, I'm going to do the blatant plug thing here, but I actually kind of, I wrote up an alternate initiative system. Is that your popcorn the, system? The popcorn system. I was yeah. going to bring that up too. Yeah. yeah, and it basically, it just simplifies initiative, but it creates a good back-and-forth dynamic. So if you head over to, to my website, angrydm.com, you can find the popcorn system for initiative. And maybe you'll find that to your liking if initiative is something that you struggle with. The big thing, though, with initiative is that it doesn't matter as much as people think it does again. If the wrong orc out of the five orcs moves, I'm stuck on orcs tonight, I don't know why. <laughs> But if the wrong orc takes the move, as long as you're, the, the monsters only take the five actions that they have in a turn, you're okay. It's not the end of the world. So trying to track it to that level of granularity, if it's beyond you, don't bother. Yeah, I, I remember in my very early days of gaming, we would actually get into arguments about initiative. You know, not in the sense of forgetting whose turn it was, but... I specifically remember one one player wanted to uh, refocus, which in three and three five d twenty terms means you you spend your round and treat it as if you'd actually rolled a, a twenty instead of what you rolled, and then the next turn order that's your new initiative. And we got into this huge argument, stopped the entire game of someone saying, "Well, that's a great tactic," and then someone else said, "No, it's not, because it doesn't really change anything." and it stopped the whole game. It was just so pointless. <laughs> Especially because in the end, it doesn't do anything different than you can accomplish with a delay or a ready. Yeah, so. right. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Like, isn't that there's just a, a reason hole? it vanished from the game? Exactly. <laughs> well, one thing you you mentioned, Caleb, about uh, sort of doing the on deck thing. I think from you know that the 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 word everyone likes to talk about immersion. That's a very gamey sort of technique because you know you're on deck. You're after that. Um, I can see that being effective. It, it kind of sideways moving into one of the things about fourth edition that used to just drive me crazy is I would be ready to move on to the next person, and then they would be like, oh, wait, I still have a minor action left. And we kept doing this thing where I thought we would move on to the next person, and then we had to back up. So we, when we were playing fourth edition, we got to the point where someone had to say, I'm done. It was almost like, sort of like a chess thing where, okay, Everyone just waits for you to do all your three things or you know whatever actions you're going to take, and until you say you're done, we don't move on, because we kept having people that would step on each other's toes. And again, that's not a knock on fourth edition. It was just one of the things that we had to learn to deal with while we were playing fourth edition, because you do have that economy of action, and from a games gamesmanship standpoint, it didn't make sense a lot of times not to do everything you can do. So people would search for ways to make sure that they got their move, their attack, and then their minor every time. Uh, quick suggestion on that? Yeah. Uh, let them say I'm done, but make them say I'm done in character. <laughs> uh, like, like for example, when you end your turn and you know who's coming next, you like say you finished your turn and now you know Rothgar is going to go. So your character could yell something as simple like, Rothgar, can you take care of that ogre? And even if Rothgar doesn't go and takes care of the ogre, it prompts him to say something like, no, I've got to handle these goblins here. 
and then he'll run over and take his action. It signals the end of the turn, it provides a transition, and it keeps everyone in character, and it gets people talking in the battle, which is one of the hardest things to do, is get the, the players talking to each other. Yes, I would. Well, that's a fantastic suggestion. That it's a way to take something that could be very mechanical and gamey, and then make it a positive and make it a role play moment. So I think that's a fantastic idea. And I, I agree with you. That's one of the things that we're going to touch on later. Is usually for me when I'm running a battle, the longer the battle goes, the less descriptions I use. And I sort of just start. It gets to the point where it is just I roll, you take ten damage. You roll, I take five damage, and eventually one of us dies. And I think that's a good way to sort of maintain the same balance throughout the whole battle and get people to kind of role play in a combat situation. So moving on to the, the kind of our next topic, again, if, assuming that you're kind of a newer DM, this is a, I'm going to assume that your group's kind of new as well. Do you skip people? If you have someone that's their turn and they're trying to figure out what spell they want to use or they're not sure what tactic they want to use, do you ever just get to the point where you're like, okay, you're holding and then you move on to the next person? You mean if, if someone is indecisive when their turn comes up? Correct. So the, the, the actual player isn't sure what they want their character to do. Like, how long do you wait before you just say, okay, uh, you're on hold and you move to the next player? Oh, wow. That, okay. Um, I mean, I guess, from my experience groups, if you don't start talking to me immediately, I, look, I'm kind of a jerk in combat. Because as far as I'm concerned, a combat is supposed to be rapid fire, it's supposed to be fast, it's supposed to be panicked, and you can't figure out what your next action is. So if you're not, if you don't open your mouth and language doesn't start coming out immediately when it's your turn, then I'm going to be on top of you immediately. I'm going to say, hey, you've got six seconds. Like, you, you know, or a round is six seconds or something to remind you. And I don't let up on that. But... That's for my experienced players who I, I can tell when they're going to throw a punch and know when to duck so I can handle <laughs> that. But I also run a lot of games for strangers, like at conventions and stuff. And in those cases, I tend to be a little bit more gentle, but I'm still prodding. Like, if again, if the person isn't talking almost immediately, either with a question or with a declaration of action or whatever... It's, you know, I try to, I, I, all right, if I can take another second here. One of the tricks I use is I do segues between the turns and initiative. Okay, so for example, like, let's say the orc is just finishing up his turn, because I'm still stuck on orcs. So the orc strikes Ragnar and does six points of damage. So the orc, you know, he slashes at you, six points of damage, opening a gash over your shoulder, sending you tumbling backwards. And now it's Ragnar's turn, so I will continue that, and now as the orc resets for another blow, what do you do? And I kind of give this sort of leading prompt in. And I mean, in a situation like that, the guy's in, engaged with the ogre, he's going to respond, or, or the orc, or whatever I said, he's going to respond to that orc right away. But if the next turn was someone else, say someone across the battlefield, and say maybe it's the cleric, you know, then I might lead him with something different and sends Ragnar sprawling. Meanwhile, across the battlefield, uh, Melina sees Ragnar take this massive hit and he struggles backwards. Nobody's around her right now. Melina, what do you want to do? And in that, I'm kind of prompting the most urgent thing that that character might be paying attention to. 
And new players especially will fixate on that, and they'll say, wait, I'm a cleric, and he just got hurt. I should do something about that. And, the, you know, it kind of prompts them to something that they're thinking about. It also limits their focus. So the problem is when you have a battlefield, a battle going on with ten monsters, or five monsters, five PCs, that's ten moving parts plus terrain, there's a lot going on. And people get distracted because they have to decide between all those things. If you can put a spotlight down by leading into their action with the most urgent things that are going on around them, whether it's a monster closing in on them, or a nearby friend, or the wizard just got cornered by the ogre because everybody notices that on the battlefield. Whatever it is, by narrowing their focus, it makes it easier for them to make decisions. Even if they ultimately decide against you, you know, at least you've kind of gotten them thinking about how to deal with the current situation and what's really going on. That is an especially useful tool if you're running theater of the mind style combat because you're you're reminding people of what was going on in the battle before their turn came up when they don't have a greater a picture. So again, you get very good at segueing from action to action and prompting something from them. So just kind of you know listening to you go through that, I. I... Thinking back to my own games, I do think I've done some of that more now that we are theater of the mind. It's kind of interesting that you brought that up at the end. But, you know, I started back, I can remember when I first started playing where you had to declare your action at the beginning. And if if the circumstances changed, then you sometimes lost your action. If you say I was going to attack orc number two and then that orc's not there, then you just lose your action. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's kind of how I started, which I think is too strict. But I think it does eliminate some of that situation that you'll get in a very tactical game where, like you said, you know, a round is six seconds, but you'll have someone study the board for a minute like it's a chess board, figure out, you know, if I move 30 feet this way, can I get flanking? If I move 30 feet this way, can I take a shot? And those are things that you realistically couldn't do in a battle. You wouldn't have that bird's eye view. And it may make things in some ways less tactical, but I do think it makes it more again, using that famous word, immersive. So I really like the idea of doing that and kind of bringing up the most immediate thing that they probably would be focused on as well as a a way to transition. So I think that's a very good idea. I was going to say I'll also add to that because of what you said is the concept is called exigency. The idea that if you don't take an action immediately, then disaster will befall you. It's the same thing that gets you to respond to a commercial because this sale is only this weekend. So the idea is you want your players to feel like they have to act now, not that they have to act best. You want them to take an immediate action rather than the best possible course of action. And I think it was, was it General Patton who said that uh, a good action taken immediately is better than the best action taken after a delay or something like that. And that's that's the mindset you want to get your players into because in the end, the choice between one attack and another isn't a huge difference in how that battle is going to play out. Sometimes it will be, but most of the time it's not that urgent and it's more important that people take the action. So if you kind of harp on them a little bit and prod them to act, even if you're not a jerk about it like I am, at least you'll get them into the mindset of acting immediately rather than acting best. And I think that's something, too. If you do that, and you do that consistently, then your players will learn to do that. They'll be looking for that. 
and I, I, I think you would have to stress that less over less over time, and mm-hmm. your players will kind of naturally do that for you and be like, okay, I saw you know Ragnar just went down, what would I do? And they almost take over that description for you, or could potentially. But never ever stop doing that tra- that description because it makes sure that the battle is still role played. So Caleb, I now I forgot. Did, did you have a chance to go on that topic? I'm sorry. No, no, you're fine. No, I missed my initiative round. Um, <laughs> you were on hold. I was on hold. You should have uh, acted. You only had six seconds to jump. Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> um, no, I, I'm really impressed by what you said there, Angry. Um, those are definitely things that I do not do as a GM, and now I feel a little bit guilty for not doing them. I, same way. <laughs> um, <laughs> I definitely want to try to start working, um, working that into my style and repertoire. Um, I always hate when a player spends five minutes looking up spells or feats. In a lot of my games, we tend to play higher level one-shots just because we don't have time to play a long campaign. And unfortunately, that leads to a lot of, oh, hold on, I forgot how these 16 feats work together moments. And it pisses me off, but I just accept it and roll with it. Um, <laughs> it's just how my gaming group has evolved. I, I know that other players don't like that, and they get distracted during those downtimes, so I try to rein that in. I, I feel that if I, as GM, am responsible for all of the monsters and the environment and the rest of the whole world, you, you as my player can be responsible for one person and you can know what the hell you're doing. If you but, don't get it exactly right, no big deal. If you forget a plus one or a minus one, who cares? It's not going to change the game that much. It's a 5% swing. But to anybody who's a new DM listening to this, I, I'll, I'm what Caleb said is really important because it may feel like you're being a jerk at the table when you're like, come on, you only have a few seconds here. What are you going to do? What do you want to take care of? What are you going to handle? You may think you're being a jerk there, but every person at that table wants you to do it. Nobody wants to sit there waiting for the one guy who takes five minutes for his turn. And the one guy who takes five minutes for his turn, he doesn't want to take five minutes for his turn, and he doesn't want to wait through anybody else taking five minutes for their turn. Everybody wants that game moving forward. So if you ride people, yeah, you'll feel like a jerk at first, and you may frustrate a person now and then. But in the long run, everybody at that table will thank you. And invariably, the guy who takes five minutes will miss anyway. <laughs> and and segue the the recent issue I had with that is uh, same thing. We we started a, a game at seventh level. We we ended one campaign and we started another. So we we kept the characters at the same level. They're you know different characters, but we started at the same level. And uh, one of the guys had never played a spellcaster before, so he's now immediately playing a seventh level caster. Has no idea what spells do what. He doesn't know what spells he has memorized, and it. It was sort of the worst case scenario of that happening where every time it was his turn, it was flip, 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 oh, you know, this, that, and the other. And it was just driving me insane to the point that I actually made spell cards for them so that they wouldn't have to flip through the books. And I think a thing to consider is if you are going to start a game at a higher level, then maybe you have to have a little bit more sense of humor about that, particularly with spellcasters. Then if you start at first level, you know, if you start at a first level caster, by the time you're seventh level, you should know your stuff. 
if mm-hmm. you've never played a spellcaster before and I throw you a 7th level caster, then yeah, probably you don't know what you're going to do each turn. But again, I'm still going to force the issue, but I probably will have a little bit more leniency in those cases. And if you find the rules minutia of whatever game you're playing is bogging down your game, play a different game. If Pathfinder is crippling the 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 time it takes you to play a combat, switch to Dungeon World, even if it is a filthy story game. Don't tell anybody I said that. It's a good game and it runs fast. Play that instead. You don't have to be married to a system if the system is crippling you. Absolutely. You the kind of guy, the frog stuck in my throat there for a second. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there, I mean, obviously that's a, a discussion for, you know, for a different time, but there are certain games that are built to help you tell a certain type of story, and if there's a type of combat that you want, you want a very tactical type of combat, then there's probably a game that will be best suited for that versus if you want, you know, something like Dungeon World or a Fate game where the combat is a lot less, a lot more abstract. So yeah, so definitely don't be married to a game and don't be married to an edition of a game because, mm-hmm. I mean, there, it, we're living in the renaissance of RPGs. Kickstarter has proliferated that, you know, the people who used to sit in their basements and write adventures are now writing games, and then those games are getting kickstarted. So you can find a game that you want to play or write your own. I think I'm talking in circles now, but absolutely agree with you that, you know, pick the game that fits best for what you're trying to do, then then try to take something and make it fit. You can give us feedback and comments at our website, dndacademy.com. You can check out previous podcasts at our website and subscribe to future ones on iTunes. If you have a suggestion for a topic, we'd love to hear it. Email your ideas to podcast at dndacademy.com, and you can connect with us on Twitter at dnd underscore academy. As always, thanks for listening, and remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.